0: What you'll hear on Patreon.
1: The opportunities that lie ahead will just will be absolutely massive, and this is why it's such um, so important. I think to really talk about abundance, um, you know, because it that is the incentive. That is the incentive. Um, you know, it's there's a world of possibilities that lie ahead, because we can have a world where everybody has a very high standard of living and that opens up all sorts of opportunities. I'm Ted Reese um, at Grossmanite on Twitter and Medium. I've got several books that I've written. Uh, first one was called Socialism or Extinction, that was self published. Another one called Humanizing Production. Then Zero Books published my book on Henrik Grossman. And I have a new pamphlet coming out called Terminal Decline with um, Everyday Analysis.
0: Yeah, that's great. Everyday Analysis is, of course, uh, part of the broader Sublation Media family. So it's really great to see that you're doing some work with them. Now, I've got a very varied listener base, viewer base, and not everybody's on board with the whole Marxism shtick. I wanted to start out by asking you, um, what is... What is your relationship to capitalism or anti-capitalism? Because I think a lot of people come to anti-capitalism as like, capitalism is this terrible system. We need to overthrow it and start from the beginning. And sometimes when I will post things and I'll say, capitalism creates uh, the future every day, I get a lot of flack and people saying, no, capitalism is a terrible system. But I'm not sure that you you think the same way. You have a, a little bit more of a nuanced understanding of how capitalism works, even as a Marxist. Could you explain that a little bit?
1: Yeah, I, t- I mean, obviously, the, there's lots of things to complain about capitalism, and I would certainly rather we were living in a socialist system. Um, but I think it's important to put everything in the fullest po- possible context. And a big part of that is is historical context. and you know ultimately we're going through a historical process and i think we have to really think in process oriented ways about how capitalism is actually building socialism um it is laying the foundations for sound, for for um for socialism and we we'll, we'll go into why i think that is and so, so yeah, ultimately, it's kind of birthing socialism. I don't think we could have skipped, like, to, to sort of abstract a little bit, I don't think we could have skipped from feudalism to, to socialism or something. Um, and there are forces that are independent of human will that are kind of building gradually. Um, you kind of have to put it in terms of evolution, like, capitalism is kind of evolving towards socialism by becoming more productive. But at the same time, I get absolutely that that also means that capitalism is becoming a harder system to live within, uh, making everyday life harder and more difficult for more and more people. But unfortunately, that's also kind of has the effect of um, that is kind of the necessary manifestation that has to occur to sort of draw people towards wanting and and building towards a new system and fighting for a new system. Because if capitalism was all hunky-dory and it was providing abundance and high living standards for everyone, there wouldn't be any reason to start building a new movement for socialism.
0: Yeah, I always find that funny how when it appeared as though capitalism you know, a lot of people had convinced themselves that capitalism had solved all of its problems, that uh, crisis was a thing of the past. And you'd think, you know, well, then let's just uh, commit ourselves to piecemeal democratic reform. And it seems to be the obvious answer, if there's no necessary reason to overcome the system. And then you had people actually arguing, wow, the system's too good. It makes us too rich. It's bad for your soul. And I thought, God, Of all the problems in the world, to overthrow an entire system because it's bad for your soul is just ludicrous. And that's part of the reason why I've been really, I I really enjoy your work and I really enjoy the work of Henrik Grossman in in that it really brings out that part of Marx's work, which says this, we are on a stage in human history and we're moving toward the potential for something else that is a necessity. If we want to have... um, continue if we want to continue the good things that capitalism does give and make them better and avoid the destruction that comes with it within our current system. Um, and it's it's not just like, oh, wouldn't it be great if there were like rainbows every day? It's 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 quite a serious thing. Um, so I wondered if you could give a little bit more insight into what you mentioned there. You said capitalism lays the foundation for communism. I know a lot of people don't like that idea. Uh, they'll point to Letters that Marx wrote late in his life saying that Russia will miss this opportunity. um, uh, They can just skip over capitalism and go straight to socialism and communism and so on. Marx-Engels Correspondence, 1877, Marxist.org. Letter from Marx to editor of the Otichis Benizapisky. If Russia continues to pursue the path she has followed since 1861 she will lose the finest chance ever offered by history to a nation in order to undergo all the fatal vicissitudes of the capitalist regime. (laughs) marx Zasilich Correspondence, February-March, 1881, the first draft. Historically very favorable to the preservation of the agricultural commune through its further development is the fact not only that it is contemporaneous with Western capitalist production, and therefore able to acquire its fruits without bowing to its modus operandi, but also that it has survived the epoch when the capitalist system stood intact. Today, it finds that system, both in Western Europe and the United States, in conflict with the working masses, with science, and with the very productive forces which it generates. In short, in a crisis that will end through its own elimination, through the return of modern societies to a higher form, of an archaic type of collective ownership and production. The historical situation of the Russian rural commune is without parallel. Alone in Europe, it has preserved itself not as scattered debris, but as the more or less dominant form of popular life spread over a vast empire. While it has in common land ownership, the natural basis of collective appropriation, its historical context, the contemporaneity of capitalist production, provides it with ready-made material conditions for huge-scale, common labor. It is therefore able to incorporate the positive achievements of the capitalist system without having to pass under its harsh tribute. So they take this as evidence that Marx didn't think that capitalism was necessary. So how is capitalism a necessary step in, in in humanity's pathway?
1: Um, Well, to start with the end of the process, I mean, I think we have to, you know, Marx was was analysing what was happening in his own time. But the reality is that the socialisms that we have had have either sort of been destroyed pretty quickly, or they have eventually collapsed in the case of the Soviet Union, or they've They've been heavily liberalised in the case of China and probably you would even say that's starting to happen in Cuba now. Um, So where are we today? We're we're sort of faced with this reality that it hasn't been possible to get rid of capitalism before it's exhausted itself as a historical mode of production. And, you know, it was driven to destroy the Soviet Union, not just because it disliked um, the Soviet Union or thought it was evil or um, saw it as a threat, an ideological threat. But it needed to, capitalism needed to expand its labor base and the the amount of labor it's exploiting, the amount of labor time it's exploiting in order to continue the process of capital, capital accumulation. So, so now, though, we, if we look at the way capitalism a, actually operates uh, today, we see that it's it's actually more and more dependent on central planning, sort of within within a a corporate private enterprise, uh, particularly a mon- the monopolistic kind. Um, if you if you look at the way it's gone under neoliberalism under the over over the last thirty forty years, is you know, they've, they've eliminated internal, internal markets. So they, there used to be a lot of, you know, a lot of companies used to have internal markets where the different departments of the companies would essentially compete against each other to sort of drive, you know, use the drive of competition to get the best out of each other. But that just became more and more inefficient and, um, meant that the, the companies weren't maximizing their profit making potential. So, that's that's one aspect of it um you know and just sorry just to elaborate out a bit more there's they're also more dependent on centralized databases because that um decreases redundancy whereas it, obviously if you have um different databases that aren't part of one um Singular database, you get uh, data replication and and inefficiencies like that. Um, you ha- you now have real time uh, data tracking of stock control. You know that's real time pl- planning. That's not even five year batch planning that the Soviet Union had. It's a far more efficient kind of planning that they have now. Um, and obviously, that's that's a manifestation of technological advancements um so the other the other things so so i call capitalism at the moment i would characterize it as an advanced state monopoly capitalism um or or a decaying state monopoly capitalism by that i mean that it's sorry i want to just clarify that so essentially an increasingly centrally planned advanced state monopoly capitalism which i think sets the stage if we if we talk evolutionary phases, for a centrally planned state monopoly socialism. So I'll explain what I mean by that. So it's increasingly dependent on central central planning. It's increasingly dependent on state facilities because private R&D is increasingly unprofitable to operate. So it's shut down and the private uh, sector becomes increasingly dependent on state RD. it's also increasingly dependent on state subsidies whereby um, public funds are redirected into private funds um, whether that's um, simply innovation or to prop up um, profit margins um, in various monopoly capitalist enterprises and it's The system is also increasingly dependent on the monopolization of industries, and that goes across the board. Um, So if you look at any sector, you'll see that there is an increasing integration of private companies through mergers and acquisitions, which are an important aspect of how every capitalist crisis, every sort of recession that we get sort of on average every 10 years is overcome. So historically, we're therefore Mm. heading towards, logically, we're heading towards a final merger, um, which would entail a public monopoly, because an absolute monopoly could not be privately owned. Um, So I therefore argue that socialism (laughs) is becoming an economic necessity for the first time, and I call it state monopoly socialism, Because I think it's important, um, again, going back to this sort of process-oriented thinking, I think you cannot, I think history has sort of very clearly shown that you can't leap over stages and hope to get away with it sort of thing. Um, I think it will come back to bite you. So, yes, there will be a, a higher phase of socialism or communism later where the state withers away, I think but I don't think you can skip over that stage.
0: Um, I interviewed Lee Phillips last week, and he was talking about a lot of the things that you touch on, which is you know uh, internal markets and the gradual realization that this was utterly disastrous, um, and the enormous amount of planning that goes on within, um, within farms. Now, all of that exists within a sea of prices. And is it possible to have this kind of monopoly, this, this final merger um, without the price signals that ultimately make that possible? I mean, doesn't that just mess up the entire system? Are we not seeing something that just happens within capitalism because of the dynamics that are intrinsic to capitalism?
1: I think the, you mean that prices are rising and, and all that stuff. Yeah,
0: I mean, like you can have... Amazon for instance has a ton of is is an extremely efficient planned economy or Walmart extremely efficient yeah. planned economy the size of you know a small country really um but it is an island of of socialism within a sea of prices and competition that's what sends the signals to be so efficient so if you don't have that competition will you still be able to hold on to that that developing socialist essence
1: well i j- I just I think the system's breaking down like and I think I think it's sort of it's going it's 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 hard to articulate because it's to try and be as sort of holistic as possible as dialectic as possible It's the the crisis is forcing companies to sort of uh, withhold or cut production and withhold distribution to force prices up. To account for the, to try and counter the falls in profitability that they're suffering, but I don't think that that is. Um, I think the same driver is still continuing to drive the mergers and acquisitions that, because that that builds up the economies of scale, and um, and sort of widens the a company's capacity to to produce which would then they would hope bring prices down you know they are aiming to bring, bring prices down again again after a certain point in the crisis um but but yeah you you can't have capitalism without without competition it just wouldn't work um you because you wouldn't you wouldn't have any if you have one monopoly like one singular monopoly there's no exchange there's no Mm -hmm. there's no one to exchange with so there's no exchange value that's what we say about socialism it's it's whereas capitalism we're producing use values and exchange values every commodity has a use value a utility and an exchange value which represents the amount of labor time contained in it more or less um that's gone with socialism it's a singular system of use value production there's no like with two social enterprises trading they're not actually exchanging goods because it's it's owned by the it's owned by the public so there's no exchange take there's no private exchange taking place so that's mm-hmm. why you couldn't have a singular capitalist monopoly
0: Right, so then if the system is breaking down, um, perhaps it's just breaking down and not becoming anything else because the mechanism that makes the distribution work is the price mechanism. So if that starts to break down because of a lack of competition, isn't there just no way out of that? (laughs) I mean, how does socialism overcome that issue?
1: Well, socialism overcomes it on its own terms because it doesn't need to make profit. So there would be no barrier because what's happening is capitalism is coming up against over accumulations of capital that are becoming greater over time. So as labor, which is, you know, the, the capital's exploitation of labor, the theft of its labor time is the source of exchange value and profit. But as as that becomes sort of ine- an inefficient, amount is being created to reproduce and expand the value of capital. Labor has to be augmented or replaced by innovation, so we see this increasing um, development or a, re- a, a, a sort of exponentially accelerating um, revolution in automated production, in in commodity production. We're talking about. Um, so as that so so this is the paradox the system needs to do that but at the same time it's removing the value creating part of the production process so this 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 goes through phases of increasing the amount of surplus value that's being produced but at the tail end of, of each cycle that it's that exhausts itself and you get back to the point where there's an inefficient amount of surplus value relative to the amount of capital value that needs to reprodu- be reproduced and expanded so you end up with a falling rate of profit and then the system goes into a recession so in the past we've had we've had partial breakdowns every recession represents a partial breakdown but at some point, we must, as this automate as automation um, continues to replace labour, we must head for a, a kind of absolute breakdown, um, and um, that does entail a class struggle. That does for enforces a class struggle because so, what the capitalists need to do to offset profits is, as well as replacing labour with automation, they need to attack the wages of the remaining laborers who work in commodity production. So this, this is going to get more intense with every recession that we have. And um, what, you know, one of the other things they do is, is obviously they cut production to, to raise prices. And at some point, this is all going to sort of snowball and manifest into a situation where the, the, the capitalist class a sort of, Becomes such a dwindling minority that it's on the verge of extinction, and B just bites off more than it can chew um, because there's just it's putting too many people out of work um, and attacking wages so, let me far, just, too, far too much.
0: Let me just um, sort of recap what the argument. So, what you're saying is that you've basically kind of <clears throat> gone through the, the the argument that capitalism. Creates a falling rate of profit, which means, which you know, it's very, it can be very complicated. But essentially, um, the reward relative to the cost of the investment gets smaller and smaller. So the incentive to invest in new production gets smaller and smaller. Um, and people will say, "Oh, but you know, now to produce things, you just need a laptop." right? But even then, the rate of profit is so low that it doesn't even warrant the laptop, the investment in the laptop, right? And if you're thinking about like information commodities, they're reproduced so easily, um, endlessly, that it's very hard to recoup your initial investment. And then, of course, you can talk about other aspects of production, like, um, you know, a shoe factory or something like that. As the prices come down and the cost of the factory and it's the um, organic composition of capital, the um the amount of machines in that factory are are so expensive relative to the return, there's less and less in- incentive to invest. Is that right?
1: Yeah, exactly. And that's a yeah, so non-cRF in it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so then this leads to a kind of uh partial breakdown, some partial breakdowns in in um uh that we see in crises although the crisis itself may be triggered by all sorts of phenomena if you dig down deep you know what why was there an incentive for instance to give people um so much debt before the 2008 financial crisis and the argument is well there was just so few there were so few places for productive investment that you start to create these debt bubbles because yeah you know why would you enter into production to create shoes or whatever when you can't be sure you're going to sell all those shoes and your rate of profit is so low why not just go give people debt um why not you know give students debt that they have to pay back you know that sort mm-hmm. of thing starts to happen but of course the the whole house of cards starts to fall down when there's nothing not enough being produced to pay back those debts is that kind of exactly. where we are yeah okay so what happens then if we just do nothing what happens if you know the the situation we have right now is there's not a whole lot of you know, class consciousness. There's not a lot of class uh, solidarity. There's no organization. Um, there was a clip that did the rounds on Twitter, on the internet, all over the place.
2: I think the problem that we've had is that we've, you know, we, we have, people decided they didn't really want to work so much anymore through COVID and that has had a massive issue on productivity. You know, tradies have definitely pulled back on productivity. You know, they, they have been paid, paid a lot to do not too much in the last few years, and we need to see that change. We need to see unemployment rise. Unemployment has to jump 40, 50% in my view. We need to see pain in the economy. We need to remind people that they work for the employer, not the other way around. I mean, theres there's been a systematic change where employees feel the employer is extremely lucky to have them, um, as opposed to the other way around. So it's a dynamic that has to change. We've got to kill that attitude, and that has to come through Hurt in the economy, which is what the whole global, you know, the the world is trying to do. The governments around the world are trying to increase unemployment to get that to some sort of normality. And and we're seeing it. I think every employer now is seeing it. I mean, there is definitely massive layoffs going off. People might not be talking about it, but people are definitely laying people off. And we're starting to see less arrogance in the employment market. And that has to continue because that will cascade across the cost balance.
0: Yeah, and you can just imagine everyone in the audience being like, <laughs> <You>
1: know? <laughs> yeah.
0: We know but we don't say this part out Be loud. Keep so, the mask yeah. on. Exactly. You know, you're supposed yeah. to say we need a mental health support for the terrible economic, you know, you know this sort of thing. Um but what happens if you have a a, a capitalist class that becomes conscious or semi-conscious of itself and really um has much more solidarity and is able to smash any kind of opposition. Um what I'm getting at here is that the most common criticism is that when we talk about breakdown, we become economic determinists. Like, oh, we can just sit back and something new will, will come up. What happens if we don't do anything? What happens if our opposition is smashed? What do we do then?
1: Well, if, if the question is, if, if, the, if, the, if, the, if the concept is that, we're, that the opposition smashed, then capitalism survives, in which case you have to ask why why did it succeed and what's the outcome so the outcome is going to be for the time being capital will be able to, to continue um, albeit at potentially a smaller you know as the capitalist class will be able to continue as a ruling class albeit maybe as a smaller portion of the population for the, for the time being and they might be able to um, increase the rate of profit for a time um, by increasing the amount of exploitation, like so by by decreasing wages. So we might end up living off very, very low wages. Um, but I I think like looking at history, you know, that sort of thing just incentivizes, you know, that sort of thing will will build class consciousness among the working class, and and you know I think we're getting to a stage where the state won't actually be able to pay the the majority of its workers that it employs, which makes it harder for the the capitalist class to enforce whatever it is it wants to enforce. So you know you know it's it's definitely a, it's a worthwhile question because obviously um it does look like we're doing nothing as a class at the moment and, um although that's starting i do think that's starting to change i think like even in britain where it's kind of notorious the, the labor movement is kind of notoriously um sort of i don't know what you worth to use about without um sort of having having myself misinterpreted but we're we're not the most militant in britain um compared to other countries compared to france and you know chile and whatnot um but there's you know we we've had the highest amount of strikes since the early 80s here in the last couple of years so things are starting to change um but it's you know it, it's it strikes for higher wages it's not strikes to change the system so but it's interesting like like the the wages have they haven't quite kept up with the with the attacks on the wages but they they have largely been clawed back which is which is quite interesting it does show it shows two things it shows that the working class is organizing effectively to some extent and it shows that the capitalist class has to expand the amount of labor it's exploiting which therefore expands the amount of outlay on wages. So they have this, this is another contradiction. This is another problem they have. If they want to start reaccumulating, they actually have to start expanding the amount of, they spend on on wages. So the whole thing's a process. It will never stop. History is not static. It, it just will not ever stop. Um, obviously, there are other problems to overcome, in terms of, you know, uh, the possibilities that, that, that could occur um, that we can get into.
0: Interestingly, they um, it seems to me they kind of realise, the capitalist class kind of realises uh, that when you cut people's wages, you create conditions of instability. Um, and when you attack the working class, you create conditions of instability, obviously. Uh, a few, well, the beginning of this year, I remember I was listening to a bunch of podcasts from Davos, uh, people reporting from their Politico podcast, that kind of thing. And um, one of the well-to-do businessmen there, billionaire, was saying, oh, no, uh, the next recession, we're not going to cut wages. You know, we've realized we can't do that. You know, the next recession will not be, uh, will not see people, um um, having their 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 salaries or whatever cut, and I found that very interesting because it seems to me they would not be able to do that. But do you see do you do you see a kind of I don't know a glimmer of recognition there that um, that workers can have the upper hand if they push too hard?
1: I think there's definitely like that within the more sane the sane parts of the capitalist class. That certainly. True. But he might also mean that um, you know, we're not gonna cut the wages of the people that we retain. It's just that yeah, people, people who are thrown on the scrap heap of unemployment will will lose their wages.
0: Yeah, probably. Um so what does a surviving capitalism look like? Let's say that there is a an all-out war <laughs> and You know, the the capitalist class just utterly sticks it to the working class, um, destroys all opposition, which is not particularly difficult to imagine, because as we've said, opposition is not that strong. It might be growing, but it's nothing like it has been in previous periods. Um, So what does that, where do we end up with? What do we end up with? Do we end up with something like a neo-feudalist system? What do you think of that? that thesis is that a possibility that we could without if we do not fight for progress we can wind up with regress
1: i mean there'll certainly be um a lot of regression um as the system breaks down if it's not toppled and replaced beforehand but it might as i say it might sort of take a lot of regression to sort of compel more and more people or enough people to to st- to move towards socialism so but I, but but i wouldn't call it neo-feudalism i would just call it capital, capitalism in decay i think there's it's understandable that people are thinking about neo-feudalism because as i say one of the things capitalism is doing is it's becoming more dependent on subsidies but it's also becoming more dependent on rent so you know, subscription models are uh, going through the roof. We see them everywhere now, um, but that's unsustainable because you're effectively in your customer base dry. Um, okay. You're eating into you're eating into wages, um, so that's that's only going to work for so long. Subsidies can only subsidize capital for so long. You know, the tax base isn't some sort of infinite, bottomless r- reservoir. Um, and you know, ultimately, with the relations of productions are breaking down into the relations of capitalist p- production are breaking down because a socialist economic technical basis of society is emerging, and it's this 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 basis of automated production. You know, the, the thing that defined feudalist production was a agricultural basis the thing that defined capitalist production was a manufacturing basis and the thing that defines socialism is is an automated basis of production broadly speaking so one type of system starts to break down or starts to be replaced so in feudalism you had agriculture being usurped by manufacturing and at a certain point um you know, things started to happen such as workers moving away from, from um, farmland into the cities because the wages were higher and the, the freedoms were, were better. So that sort of thing started happening. Um, feudal lords had to st- start selling their property because they came back from wars and they were so broke that they had no, no other option. So these are just the sort of manifestations that, that happen um, during the breakdown of a, of a society, and I think to sort of hammer it home, like Marx's line that you know if the if there isn't a resolution, then you have absolute amiceration um, between the the contending classes. I think that's a very good sort of political rhetorical line, but you know the The Roman Empire, you know, ended in in total collapse and immiseration, but it didn't stop. I was
0: just thinking of that, yeah.
1: It didn't stop the transition to feudalism. So so I think, you know, it is going to happen one way or another. It's just how bad is it going to get before we're able to persuade and mobilize enough people? Um, before that happens, and can we can we do it before it gets really really bad? I don't have the answer to that, but that's the kind of that's how you have to think about it.
0: The Roman Empire was a uh, the collapse of the Roman Empire, and then the transition to feudalism was a regress, though, wasn't it?
1: It was regressive in some ways and progressive in other ways, but 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 it. You know, it, the serfdom was a, was, a, um, was progressive relative to slavery. Yeah. It was still a well, form of slavery, heartening. but it was... Because
0: <laughs> I was thinking, like, well, you had the collapse of the Roman Empire and then you had the Dark Ages. Like, we could have a Dark Age, but even, in, even from the Roman Empire to feudalism, there's a kind of progressive kernel, which is heartening to a certain extent
1: that's the thing you're like you have you can't sort of think this is it's, it's more like the more I go into this, the less I'm sort of um I'm not I'm not like the, the more I think about this the, the less I am anti-conservative and pro-progressive I'm just processed sort of process-based thinking like what is the process yeah. that we are going through independent of our own will like and why is it happening and so on and so forth because you can't really think in those binary terms anymore
0: i mean obviously the process is god coming to know itself I, but you can see, like, I you know, haunting this discussion is like Hegel in the background, right? This idea, <laughs> but of course, it's it's humanity coming to know itself and becoming conscious of the process, right? It's it, it's it was so alienated from us for such a long time that it's it seems completely independent of human will. It appears like God's will, and now we come to know ourselves and and all of these processes as human processes that we can, through the strength of reason, grasp and perhaps direct, which I think is. Um, Quite a an optimistic message. And maybe just sticking on this optimistic message then for a moment. I want to go back to the idea of the system breaking down, what evidence you see for that, which I see, which is a a big part of the pamphlet that you've you've written. But I feel like we never really allow ourselves to dream. And we're not supposed to really, because you can't create a blueprint for an ideal future world and erect that on reality. That's just not how history works. On the other hand, one of the things that made me the way that I am today (laughs) uh, was this, you know, I always thought being a leftist was that you were a miserable, miserableist, that you complained about everything, that you complained about consumerism, banged on about how everybody had it too good and it was bad for them and it was destroying the planet and so on. And I had never heard, I hadn't read Marx yet many years ago and i had never heard an optimistic vision for the future i had never understood that there was that there had existed and could be a movement for the future that was better richer uh freer than today um i had internalized this kind of like quasi-christian socialism of punishment (laughs) um and it doesn't have to be that way And so, you know, this uh, awakened within me a latent love of space and Star Trek and so on. And I thought, well, you know, (laughs) maybe we could get to that world. So if we could allow ourselves to dream for a minute, what do you envision? So I asked you, what happens if we don't do anything? How do you envision a transition from socialism, from capitalism to socialism and maybe beyond? um, If we do act, Um, what is our best case scenario? Does the future or the pathway to the future look radically different from the present? Visit patreon.com slash Ashley A. Frawley for part two.